You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We would like to thank our friends at Bonwe and Movement for the continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by T.L. Williams, who served as a CIA operations officer until his retirement in 2009. He served in senior assignments abroad and at Langley during his three-decade career. He had eight foreign field assignments in Asia, Europe, Eastern Europe, and the Americas, and in three of these assignments, he served as a senior U.S. intelligence official in-country. At Langley, he served as Deputy Division Chief for Counterintelligence, and he speaks Mandarin, Chinese, and Spanish, which is the kind of random one thrown in there compared <laughs> to the others. His first two novels, Cooper's Revenge and Unit 400, both depict military and paramilitary operations in the Middle East, but now his third novel, Zero Day, China's Cyber Wars, examines the role China plays in cyber espionage against the United States through characters uh, that include a group of elite hackers. Now, while writing his fiction, the stories themselves are uh, not true, but uh, there's quite a few kernels of truth embedded within these novels. So welcome, Terry, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you very much for happy, uh, having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, first time I've been back in D.C. And, uh, in a few years, so this is, uh, is going to be a lot of fun. Well, we haven't really welcomed you with a good weather, but it is July, so <laughs> we do what you can. <laughs> I live in Florida. It's, uh, it's, it's warmer than it is here. So uh, while Zero Day is a novel, uh, you're ex-agency, uh, so it needed to go through review like anything written uh, by someone who's former CIA. How much pushback... As I was reading it, I'm, I'm thinking, man, they must have had an issue with this. or they, how, how was this written originally? So how much did you have to go through the PRB hell to get Zero Day published? Well, actually, it was a really interesting process. Um, I had gone through uh, the PRB process twice with the first two novels, and that was pretty pro forma. It was 30 days for each of them, a couple minor uh, changes, and, and, and we were off and running. Zero Day, uh, unexpectedly to me, was a whole different ball of wax. It took two years to get it through the PRB. And uh, the issue that I had uh, was that uh, the agency just was not being forthcoming about what their concerns were, and we were going back and forth. And there's a formal appeal process that you can go through if you would like to do that. I was strongly encouraged not to uh, go forward with publication, but absent any um, clarity about what the concerns were, I decided to push back. And so over the course of two years, we had uh, meetings, various meetings in Washington, uh, senior, very senior levels, all the way up to the top of the agency, basically. And at the end of the day, um, they allowed me to go forward with publication with 
really minor changes. It was uh, snippets. Uh, you could put it on a, on, on a half a sheet of paper. I mean, you said you don't know necessarily why they did. I mean, are, do you assume it's the topic of the book altogether that kind of freaked the CIA out about publishing it? Well, there were, uh, there were probably three different areas that I focused on uh, that might be areas of concern for CIA. Uh, one was the fact that uh, the Chinese uh, knew who I was, and uh, the sense is that the Chinese are always watching you. Once, once you're under surveillance, you're always under surveillance. And in fact, if you look at um, my SEO uh, uh, numbers on my website, um, typically in a month I'll get something like 1,000 hits on my website, 10% of those are Chinese. So uh, there was some sense that maybe that was it. The other thing I thought about was, well, maybe I stumbled into something that, you know, is happening now, but wasn't happening when I was there. And I'm depicting that. So you accidentally so I accident wrote something that was classified. I accidentally revealed it. But could I be held accountable for something that I, you know, I didn't sign on to saying that, uh, that I would protect that information? The other thing that I thought about at the time as I was going through this process was uh, in 2015, uh, President Xi Jinping of China and President Obama were uh, uh, negotiating a no-hack pact, and this was basically designed to uh, diminish Chinese hacking against U.S. economic interests. And so both sides were, were saying uh, that they were going to do this. A book coming out banging the Chinese on cyber hacking at the time this was happening mm -hmm. would not have been uh, you know, very popular. Ultimately, I heard something about a month and a half ago that makes me uh, really think uh, something else was going on. And that is the revelations in the Washington Post about a very serious uh, CI breach in the China program. And so there's a good chance that with that uh, coming into play in 2013, 2014, and a book talking about China, it just didn't mesh well right. for them. So I'd like to welcome all of our new Chinese listeners to SpyCast. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, so I, I, I've talked to a ton of authors uh, since I've been doing this, and, and a lot of them are historians. They're not ex-agency. And many writers tend to go to friends and colleagues for editing and proofreading and throwing around ideas. Does that work for, for ex-intelligence guys also? I mean, do you, do you pass the, 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 the galley print off to a former colleague somewhere and say, hey, what do you think about this? Well, if you're strictly following uh, the rules of the PRB, uh, no part of your manuscript is supposed to be shared with any person until the PRB is chopped off on it. Realistically, that just doesn't work. I mean, writers don't uh, write in a vacuum. They don't work in a vacuum uh, as you're preparing something. I mean, even my wife, who is a former uh, agency employee, uh, is an, an official editor, but she's kind of a sounding board for right. me, and, and, and I run it by her. And, and other friends. So, uh, no, yes. <laughs> it doesn't. Absolutely not. Yeah. You did not do that. You haven't broken any rules or laws. Right. Um, completely understand. So we, we, we have a lot of listeners who are thinking about career choices. Some of them are in undergrad, some grad school, some early career, trying to figure out what direction they want to go in. And so whenever I have uh, someone who spent a career in CIA, I want to ask some basic questions. And really the biggest one is, what drew you to the agency in the first place? Because a lot of people are trying to grapple with that today. Uh, you know, whether it's dealing with, um, you know, the life itself, because there's a lot of sacrifices that you make when you decide to be an operations officer. Um, and, you know, at the time, perhaps, you know, talking three decades ago, there was a different world. So what, what brought you to the agency in the first place? 
Well, interestingly enough, I didn't grow up always wanting to be a CIA officer. <laughs> I think it was the FBI, actually, uh, watching all those Elliot Ness uh, films. Uh, for me, I had uh, I'd grown up overseas partially as an uh, Air Force brat. I spent four years in Spain as a kid. And uh, I, I got the travel bug early, and uh, that turned into a stint in the Peace Corps in the early 70s. And you don't find a lot of uh, Peace Corps volunteers going into the agency. Yeah, well, that's actually interesting kind of dynamic there with the Peace Corps and the agency. That's Right. Actually, if you looked at my personnel file, the very first page in my personnel file said, uh, this officer will never serve in Columbia, which is where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Because uh, the agency does not want there to be any perception that uh, that they use the Peace Corps right. for cover or anything like that, and they don't. And and in fact, there's a uh, stricture that you have to wait five years before reaching out to the agency if you have been a Peace mm-hmm. Corps volunteer and are seeking employment at the agency. It doesn't work the other way. If you were at the agency and then you want to be a Peace Corps volunteer, it doesn't happen. But... Um, so we did uh, two years in uh, in Colombia. My wife, I met my wife down there, and um, we were talking about what we wanted to do. One of the things we really enjoyed uh, in that experience was doing some volunteer teaching English to campesinos. And so we went out and got a master's degree in teaching English. And we found ourselves in places like over the next five, seven years, uh, Iran, Guatemala, Japan, and that looked like that was going to be a, an interesting career. But I found I just wasn't being challenged by it. Uh, teaching was, was okay, but it wasn't what I was looking for. So we had come back to the States. Uh, we were in Iran at the time. Uh, things kind of fell apart, and uh, we got out of there. And we were looking around, looking, uh, looking at something to do. And I saw an ad in the Boston Globe. They were looking for uh, intelligence officers uh, to apply to the CIA. And it had never occurred to me before. I just wasn't, it wasn't on my horizon. And I thought, wow, that would be amazing. And so uh, I went in and uh, interviewed and uh, got shot down immediately uh, by some guy in Boston who said, you didn't go to Harvard? Forget it. (laughs) You're not coming into the CIA. (laughs) But uh, ended up reapplying in uh, in, uh, Ohio. I'm from Ohio. We'd gone out to Ohio. And uh, had an exact opposite, rec- uh, you know, uh, reaction from the guy that interviewed me there. It was like, "Whoa, you have a master's degree. You speak foreign languages. You've lived overseas. You're amazing." And thank God you're not from Harvard. <laughs> you're not from Harvard. Uh, so that's kind of how it happened. It was, um, it, it, it was kind of just by chance almost. Yeah. You tell us a little, I mean, you can only say so much about your career. It's not like you weren't a, you weren't an analyst. You're an operations officer. But your career did span three decades, so it starts during the time of the Cold War uh, and then spans into post-9-11 world and then even into, we're still in the post-9-11 world, but you know, the changes to espionage like you detail in your book, like cyber. So over your career, again, you can't say a whole lot about what you did, but what you saw is more what I'm interested in and how, the, how CIA transformed during this time period how it, for better or for worse, I mean, maybe you can say, what did you see that was positive from when you started till now? And what did you see as a potential? I don't want you shaking your hand in a cloud, like, you know, it was better in the good old days. But what, what you've seen that they maybe did better uh, back in the day that uh, maybe you should start thinking about going back to today? Well, you know, it was interesting. When I went in, um, I, one of the first people I met uh, when I was uh, in um, East Asia Division was a gentleman by the name of Stanley Bergman. And Stanley was a uh, mentor for a lot of people. 
And the thing that was amazing about Stanley, he was no longer an employee at CIA. He was just kind of a fixture uh, around the division. He was uh, a person who parachuted into Burma behind Japanese uh, lines uh, as an OSS officer back in the day in the 1940s. And so I had this, from the very beginning, this link to the very uh, beginnings Mm -hmm. of the agency. I had this person that I ended up, uh, over the course of um, at least a decade, I think Stanley was pretty old at that point, but I would come back from foreign assignments and Stanley would still be there although sometimes his office would have been moved down a little bit <laughs> smaller and, and, and further away from the front office. But he, uh, he was a link to the past and a link to that whole sort of incipient uh, intelligence uh, organization that came out of, uh, out of the OSS days. And then I, you know, I, I think about the kinds of operations that we were doing in those days uh, and the trade craft and Technology didn't play as big of a part in it as it does now, and the whole technical aspect of operations. Uh, but it was very different. And and then, you know, I'm reading, uh, although I'm not at the agency anymore, I, was, I, I keep up with what's going on to the extent that I can. And I was reading uh, something about uh, John Brennan's creation of the director of digital innovation. So John Brennan uh, was a classmate of mine. And we came in together in 1980. He went on to uh, much bigger things than I did in my career. But uh, he obviously saw the agency going in a very uh, different direction, as indeed I think it needed to, to uh, deal with the threat of cyber and and what's happening on that front. And so uh, I think by creating this directorate, he certainly positioned the agency to to be able to move uh, smartly in that direction, perhaps in ways that they uh, would not have if they didn't have that. I think that, uh, you know, people talk about the fact that in the, in the post-Cold War world, there, it was become so multipolar versus the bipolar world of the Cold War. But I think I, I call the Cold War bipolar all the time, but I think it may be a misnomer, and especially somebody that worked in East Asia may appreciate that more than others do, because the opening to China really kind of threw a wrench into this idea of us versus them, because you bring in this kind of third party that was being worked during the Cold War against both sides and with both sides. And in, in, as an old China hand, um, how did you see that evolve into what it is today? Well, the, the China relationship has always been a complex relationship. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I was doing research for uh, Zero Day, uh, the book that we're, uh, we're going to be talking about in a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the things that I discovered, and I hadn't really realized it, at the time, was that the U.S. and China were... Uh, working SIGINT sites in Western China together mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to track uh, Russian uh, missile launches and trajectory and that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. We, we were doing that with them then. And, and if you go back even historically before that, when, um, you know, when the, uh, the nationalist uh, government and the, the communists were trying to fight the Japanese and we were supporting China that way back right. in those days. And now we're sort of, you know, I mean, it's that axis has turned a little bit. Uh, we're uh, we're in so many areas that are confrontational. Uh, it seems that trade is the kind of gum that holds the thing together, right. and everybody uh, doesn't want to rock the boat too much because of that. But on so many fronts um, where uh, there's room for conflict, it, 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 it certainly exists. Certainly on the cyber front, there's just an unbelievable uh, thing going on there. 
We'll get back to T.O. Williams momentarily, but first let me tell you a little about Bonwi.com. That's B-O-N-W-I.com. Bonwi.com is a website that specializes in hotel and car reservations. They combine the best and most interesting aspects of price search and rewards into a single site. Now, you've heard about all of these before. There's ads about them everywhere. But what's interesting about this site is that Bonwi.com was formed by a group of travel professionals who have an aggregate 100 years of travel industry experience. This experience includes the birth of online travel, where their founder was part of one of the very first online travel sites going back to the dawn of online travel, the 1990s. This experience is what has helped them to rise above the rest. Not only do they back their low rates with a 110% price guarantee, but Bonwee's unique infrastructure gives them access to special rates from hotels that their proprietary algorithms then pair up with extraordinary rewards offers. When you book through Bonwee.com, you also get up to 30% back in rewards points. Like other travel sites only give you 2% to 10% at best. Reward points can be used for airline tickets, hotel stays, and gift cards. These points have no restrictions, no blackouts, and no processing fees. Imagine booking four to five hotel nights and getting enough points just from that to get a free airline ticket, additional free nights, or $100 Amazon gift card. New members will even get 1,500 reward points just for signing up, which is also free, by the way. Learn more by visiting bonwi.com. Again, that's B-O-N-W-I.com to start saving money on hotels and getting up to 30% back in rewards. Well, let's, let's talk about the book because I think that readers, regardless of if this is an, the topic itself is of interest to them, will find a lot of interesting tradecraft discussed in this book. Right. Um, and, and I want to start with that because I think that one of the... Um, one of the more realistic portrayals of tradecraft in this book is the agent recruitment process. Uh, again, not to give away any plot points that are important as we move, but there there is a Chinese asset that's recruited by the agency. Um, but a lot of the question is about asset validation. Like, can you trust this guy? How do we how do we know this person's not a dangle? How do we know they haven't been doubled back against us? Um, you talk in there about constantly testing an asset. Without, again, without giving anything away that you can't give away, you can talk a little bit about this recruitment process. Again, not giving away methods or anything, but the process itself of recruiting an asset and all the pitfalls that might you know, come your way when you're trying you know, essentially a cold recruitment or even a walk-in where right. you know, the bells are ringing even more of a potential dangle. Well, that certainly was the case in this, uh, this, this piece of the book. Uh, the... Um uh, the asset is actually uh, a volunteer, and uh, he doesn't volunteer directly to uh, our officer because our officer isn't uh, in that part of China. We, d- we didn't have a, um, uh, an officer of presence there. So uh, basically he, he tosses a letter into uh, the window of the vehicle of the regional security officer who gets it to Langley. and. And then everybody's uh, trying to validate it and go, wow, is this for real or not? You, uh, you're really worried in a situation like that when someone throws himself at you because uh, it's, you're dealing with an unknown, and particularly when it's something that's as outlandish as the proposal that he's put out there uh, regarding the nature of China's cyber hacking against the U.S. So uh, from the get-go, uh, you have lots of those questions, and you want to know what is it about this person that I can, I can validate up front from known intelligence or known information about his organization, how he would fit in, what he would naturally have access to, and that sort of thing. So you go through that with them, 
it's harder for a person in that kind of an environment because you don't have the opportunity to sit down face to face like we are right, right now and have that conversation. And so it can be more uh, drawn out. It takes place over time. And it's not a one-time deal. It, it, we don't sort of ask these questions one time and then say, okay, we did asset validation, let's move on. This is something that has to be part and parcel of the relationship from the beginning until the person actually um, is no longer uh, working for you as a, as a clandestine asset. Because even if they do hand over good information, there are chances that the country of origin is willing to give up some decent information to get the source validated so that they can pass along bad stuff to you or be a double against you. Yeah, I think a long time ago we gave up the notion that uh, the uh, sort of the perceived value of the information was a good validation tool. Uh, we recognized, and we've seen this in many cases, where people are dangled to us that uh, they're willing to give up information uh, on the expectation that that will be the... Uh, the hook that's, mm -hmm. that draws you in, and, and, and then you become uh, sort of part of this dance, uh, this, this double agent dance, you know, who's, who's uh, the, you know, the mirrors and right, who's and, running, and who's who, running yeah. who type of thing. So, uh, yeah, you have to be, uh, you know, you have to look for clues and be creative about testing the person in ways that don't present themselves, obviously. Uh, you know, even looking at the information, you, you, you say, well, okay, that information may be true, but is this information this person could have had given the access that they're claiming? Uh, it, it, does it make sense? Does it ring true that right. he would have that, knowing what we know about, you know, uh, who, who typically would have access to that kind of information? Well, the trouble also is that even if you recruit them or they walk in and volunteer and they're clean at that point, meaning they want to work for you at that point, you never know along the way if they've been captured and turned back against you. They have a constant need to validate because you may not know that they've been arrested. They may be used now uh, you know, to, to disinf disinform you as a kind of a slow play to try to build trust and then kind of feed you bad information. I mean, that's, that's kind of classic tradecraft there. Right. That happens. And, and, and you sort of build in... Um, you build in elements in your communications plan with the person to um, be able to pick up uh, clues if, if something like that has happened. I won't talk about that specifically, mm. but um, yeah, uh, at any time, uh, particularly in uh, these totalitarian regimes where uh, a family uh, can be held hostage to, you know, to that right. uh, cooperation or non-cooperation, uh, means that you, uh, you, you run the risk of uh, having somebody double back against you. Well, one of the great uh, tradecraft um, vignettes in, the, in this book uh, is something that flies in the face of what a lot of people you see in the movies, where uh, the, the guy is trying to get black, he's trying to lose his surveillance, and he changes one taxi real quick, and all of a sudden the bad guys are gone. Uh, I think you do an exceptional job of showing how SDRs really are, how, how long it takes for you to feel comfortable that you have lost surveillance. So I'm not sure if you can answer this question. I, I'm assuming you've done a surveillance detection run in your time once or twice. <laughs> On average, how long do they tend to take? And were you ever 100% sure that you were black? Did you ever have the feeling I can be, I can relax, I can calm down? Or were you always on alert that you might be uh, in a position where you've got to move quickly? Well, I would say that um 
surveillance detection runs and the uh, length of them and the uh, complexity of them often are uh, uh, predetermined by the operational environment that you're in. So if you're in a, you know, people will use the term benign environment. Uh, from my point of view, there's no benign foreign environment. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes there's no benign, <laughs> benign environment, environment here at home. Uh, but there are environments that are not as, uh, from a counterintelligence perspective, as uh, uh, rigidly, uh, you know, sort of mm -hmm. mounted against you as others. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it may be several hours. It may be uh, all night. It, it, it really depends on the circumstances. Uh, How ineffective is public transportation? Because you, you made an interesting point. Because, again, in a lot of the movies, people jump on a bus or they jump on a cab. Well, a cab's better, but like a bus or a train or something. But public transportation has set schedules. Right. And it makes it very easy for a counterintelligence professional to go, well, that bus, I know exactly where it goes and when it goes. Uh, you know, is that something the, the, the Hollywood gets incredibly wrong? Sure, I think that's wrong. If, uh, you know, if you're on public transportation and uh, you have surveillance out there, they hopscotch in front of you, they put different people out. If, if they're going to the trouble to put those kinds of resources on you, you'll never see it. Uh, they're up there, they have your description. You're probably not doing a uh, clothing change on public transportation. So you're going to pop out somewhere and they're going to see you pop out. They'll have all the uh, exits mm -hmm. covered, and, and they'll just pick you up. You won't even know you have it. So uh, it's just a constant game of pushing, probing, uh, seeing if you can begin to see some anomalies, see some repetition either in faces. I personally don't look at faces, or I, I look at shoes a lot. Shoes okay. are a hard thing for surveillance to, uh, to change, but they will change some other clothing, you know, a, a shirt or a jacket or a hat or something like that. So you mentioned in the very beginning, and we joked about the fact that the Chinese know who you are. Right. And that's not your own fault. It's not like you, you did something and got burned. But you, you actually were outed by uh, a double. Is it, was that the wrong terminology? Was it the person, an actual double, or was it just somebody who was a, uh, turned against us? Well, what happened, uh, you know, despite having done a couple of years of serious tradecraft training and all of that and being prepped for uh, an assignment, um, I, I got to my first assignment and pretty much they were all over me and you you know you're, you're kind of shocked because you're thinking wow uh, does everybody get this is this is this normal um, and you were you had official cover I had right? official yeah. cover okay. right so uh, years later I mean we're talking eons later uh, I had occasion to be reviewing some files and uh, saw uh, a report that um, a double agent for uh, who was working for the FBI, uh, known as Parlor Maid, you probably know about the Parlor mm -hmm. Maid case, Katrina Leong, uh, was uh, having an affair with her handling officer, J.J. Uh, Smith, who worked out of the Los Angeles field office. And J.J. Uh, leaked my name to her. Mm. And it got passed on to the Chinese. So... Yeah, was I mad? I mean, at the time, I, I had no clue. I, I thought, wow, I must have done something wrong. You, you start being very critical of yourself and wondering uh, how, how that happened. Uh, but uh, later on, it's kind of like, oh, I, really, the threat from uh, within is one you have a really hard time protecting against. Yeah. How long did they pull you out 
very quickly or did you operate there even though you just had surveillance all the time? I mean, how much did that cramp your style was the best way it, of putting it? Let's just put it this way. It, it uh, made it a lot more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the look that it's time to move on. So I'm going <laughs> to. So you do, you do make an interesting argument also in the book uh, about agent motivation. We, we won't give away the plot point. Uh, but we do talk about that a lot here at the museum. You know, people ask all the time, like, why would someone like Ames or Hansen turn against their country? Or why would somebody essentially, you know, when you recruit somebody overseas, you're recruiting them to commit treason against their country. Right. So it's kind of the counterbalance to the people that we look at, you know, with scorn here in the United States of the Ames, Hansen, Walker types. It, so we, you wonder about motivation and you, you talk in the book about revenge being right. the best motivation. Are you, do you believe that? I do. Um, you know, there for the longest time, uh, I can remember as a junior officer, I was always told by my, my, by my uh, COS, you know, unless you're given money, it's not a recruitment, and they have to take money. And so uh, there is an element, uh, I think, of, okay, sure, if they're accepting money from you, then they're somehow indebted to you, and, mm -hmm. and they get used to that. But... Um, I really like revenge. You know, uh, somebody that has been uh, wronged in some way or a family member has been uh, wronged and there's a deep-held desire for revenge, you know, you may not control them as easily as, as you might if you, you're giving them a big paycheck every month, but, uh, boy, they're going to work their tail off for you. So. It's kind of like the new ideology, you know, where, you know, it used to be communism and, you know, sucked people in in the 30s because they believed in this utopian society. Right. You know, where they're true believers. And, you know, revenge really brings you the true believer. It does. Yeah. So let's shift, because this book is about cyber. So I want to ask you some, because that's certainly in the news nonstop today, but it doesn't seem to be educating the public. Even the, even though there are hundreds of newspaper articles about about the cyber uh, cyber field, um, uh, you, you still hear prominent people referring to it as the cyber. Um, and uh, <laughs> and there, there are those that think that, you know, anything computer-related is cyber-related. And, and, and are you worried or do you worry that so few people really understand this topic, that it's really a small cadre of specialists who understand cyber and its ramifications. It, it, to me, it seems like it's hard to make policy that way. When, when a lot of members of Congress and people at the White House, regardless of administration, just don't have the technical background to understand this. Uh, and how hard does it make it to make the public understand the policies that are being passed? I think it's really hard. I, I, I think there's a dissonance between uh, the public and the government on something like cyber policy. And I think a lot of that is occasioned by, you know, you go back to 9-11 uh, and uh, the Patriot Act and, and all the uh, authorities that were given to intelligence and law enforcement to collect, uh, where uh, a lot of, there was a lot of incident, uh, incidental collection uh, against individuals who felt that their um, they were being violated in a way. The privacy was being violated. And so I think that set up a wall, really, yeah. uh, on that, that particular front that hasn't come down entirely. I attended a uh, conference, a cybersecurity conference in Tampa at MacDill Air Force Base last fall. And it was all, I mean, I was the only novelist there who, I was an outsider. I was really not a cyber expert. I don't consider myself a cyber expert. But uh, I tried steeping myself in this for, for, for the book. and. And that was one of the reasons why I was there. I wanted to test some ideas and listen to what they had to say. 
And uh, I mean, these guys were on a whole different plane than anyone else I've ever talked to about cyber related stuff. So they talked about the dearth of uh, cyber expertise in, in this country to the tunes of tens of thousands of jobs that are going begging. Um, I think there needs to be a dialogue really between the citizenry, uh, state and federal government on what we need to do to secure the cyberspace that we are all in. Um, you know, when you think about it, when computers first came uh, into being in the 1980s and the internet in the 90s, uh, at the most you had maybe a desktop or something mm -hmm. like that. Now you're walking around with three or four uh, device, smart devices that are talking to the internet. And so uh, the notion that there's privacy uh, is out the window. There's right. no privacy, really. It's very hard to have privacy. And so we need to kind of get beyond this angst about, oh, it's the government against us that I think uh, typifies a lot of the conversation and uh, make cyber education an important part of uh, education beginning in elementary school. Right. Well, those are the ones, the elementary kids are the ones that understand this better than a lot of other people do because they're growing up in this world. You know, I think you look at the general public and, it, and no one's going to make anyone a cyber expert, but I think just some basic you know, literacy about the world uh, can make a difference. You know, and, and I think, you know, I, I know a bit about this and certainly in reading your book, there are certain things where I'm like, okay, if I read this as a novel, I may want to know more about X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's why I see things like this because it's not a textbook where you're kind of being force fed this information. You're learning stuff as you kind of read this interesting narrative. Well, this is kind of a, it's a tact I've taken with um, all my novels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a lot of people describe my books as, uh, as beach reads. They think they're good beach reads, uh, spy, uh, spy novels. But what I try to do is I deal with what I perceive to be uh, current national security issues uh, in a sort of in a fictional uh, account that would be palatable to somebody, to, to sort of Joe on the street right. kind of guy who's not reading foreign affairs or a technical manual or the Wall Street Journal or, or, or the New Yorker or anything like that. So they can pick this up. And, and I can't tell you how many people down in Florida have talked to me. They've come up to me and gone, is this really going on? I mean, right. is this true? And I said, well, this is a fictional account, but it portrays a situation that we're in the middle of right now. Yeah. Well, I think one of the interesting things that the book kind of focuses on is the public-private partnership when it comes to cyber. Because that's a, one of the most difficult things that has to be overcome in order to protect this country. Because I don't care how good the military gets or the intelligence community gets in, in you know, their, their ability to protect their infrastructure. But something like 87 or 90 percent of all critical infrastructure in the United States is owned by private industry. Right. So the government can do whatever it wants to, but unless it gets private industry to come along, it doesn't matter. We're wide open for attack. Well, you know, there was, um, I think it was last year, the Cybersecurity Act was passed by Congress. Uh, people sort of question whether it has any teeth. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if um, uh, the private uh, industry is as forthcoming as... Um, as they might be with the government when there are cyber breaches. That's kind of what they're being called upon to do, share this information so that it can kind of get distilled down into this, right. this database where they go, wow, okay, we're seeing it, it's all coming from here, or you know, make linkages and do link analysis and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think to date there hasn't been that sense that they can 
necessarily trust the government with their information because well, the government's getting yeah. hacked all the time. Well, <laughs> and that's the trick. I mean, is you can get mad at these corporations, but there's some real liability issues with, right. you know, if they, if let's, I'm not, I'm not even going to mention a, a company, a company A that's a multi-billion dollar company. If it tells the government it's been hacked, it basically opened themselves up to lawsuits from any people who shop there or from stockholders, investors, and investors uh, everybody else. And then it tells their competitors that they've been hacked. And I can understand why companies are hesitant to pass that information along to the federal government to make it public. But that's that's the key, right? You need to be able to learn from each other. And if you're not openly talking about it, it's going to be impossible to do that. Right. I think it has to be a joint enterprise between the private sector and the government. Um, and um, we're not there yet. <laughs> do, we, do we need a, a cyber Pearl Harbor or a cyber 9-11 to get everybody on the same page about this? I mean, to, to get enough I mean, intergovernmental cooperation and private public cooperation, get the public behind doing something about this. I mean, I thought the election hacks and, and forget Trump versus Clinton, forget any politics involved in this. Right. I thought the Russians coming in and hacking the DNC and, you know, doing whatever they did to the elections would be the wake-up call. Just like I thought OPM being hacked and 30 million many top secret, you know, SF-86s stolen by the Chinese would be the wake-up call. I mean, what will finally be, I mean, again, in your opinion, it's not, the wake-up call that will get Americans to kind of coalesce behind some kind of a national policy to deal with the cyber world? That's a good question. I, I mean, that's sort of what uh, Zero Day posits. It... it you know, I think back to uh, post 9-11, there was a conversation that uh, supposedly took place in the White House. Uh, some senior advisors were talking to uh, President Bush, and they, uh, they said, you know, uh, as bad as 9-11 was, and not to minimize the loss that we had there and all the loss of uh, personal uh, lives and everything, we would have been way, way worse if they had taken out our banking system, for, for example. And um, shortly after that, I think Bush appointed the first cyber czar. Mm -hmm. And so they've had a series of cyber czars uh, since then who have been looking at national cyber policy. And I, I, I'm sure they're running scenarios day in and day out about what would be the worst thing. We know, for example, that the Chinese are doing uh, cyber probes all the time, uh, probing military um, uh, related, I suppose. I, I wouldn't call it necessarily military uh, per se, um, unclassified networks for sure, but uh, let's say infrastructure that um, uh, that would be key uh, at, at any time, uh, gas pipelines. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say they go in there and they put some little bomblets in there and say, uh, okay, these we want these to go off when we tell them to, and it's going to be, you know, when, when the U.S. takes us off. I've got a little uh, slide that I use sometimes. Um, that goes back to uh, Sun Tzu, a Chinese general from the 6th century BC, who wrote an interesting book called uh, The Art of War. And a quote from him on uh, how you, you know, deal with your foe is, in war, the way is to avoid what is strong and strike what is weak. And so uh, China understands that even though they outnumber us uh, personnel-wise on the military side, they are clearly, clearly an inferior force in terms of naval capabilities, air capabilities. But uh, on cyber, uh, they can have their way with us. And, and, you know, they have been. And so I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this seems to be the broader Chinese strategy of trying to 
so, somewhat in the same way the Russians are operating now, kind of hybrid war theory, is the realization that they can't take the United States on, no one can take the United States on in a conventional force versus force environment. So some of these smarter, longer term thinking countries are looking at ways to close that gap. Um, you know, you, you say in the book, and this is not, you're not the first person to ever say this, but you know, the United States thinks in years and decades if we're lucky, whereas the Chinese are thinking in centuries and millennia. Right. And, you know, and, and unless we start thinking that way, they'll just wait us out. Right. They tend to be much more patient, take the longer view on these things than we do. We're kind of, I know it's like the millennials. I want instant gratification. <laughs> yeah. The two guys sitting here running the boards are uh, millennials, but I'm not think I'm Gen X all the way. So I can laugh at the millennials as well. We're talking boomer uh, over here. Yes. Boomer. <laughs> well, more of this conversation in a minute, but by now you've heard me more than once talk about movement. They reinvented the watch business by selling direct to you with over 1 million watches sold to date. Well, they did it again, except this time with sunglasses. They were tired of having to pay for cheaply made throwaway shades or overpriced designer sunglasses. So they said, screw it, we'll make our own, starting at just $70. Look, I have a love-hate relationship with sunglasses. On one hand, I have very light eyes, so I need to wear them on even overcast days. I mean, look, I dig the squinty Clint Eastwood man with no name look, but it only goes so far. On the other hand, I have a habit of either breaking or losing just about every pair of sunglasses I start to like. It's hard to invest $200 in sunglasses I'm just going to lose, but the $15 pair from the drugstore is lucky to last me a week. Movement has a solution. Their sunglasses start at just $70. With the option to upgrade to polarized for sunglasses this good, those overpriced designer brands will run you upwards of $200. Movement figured out, just like they did with watches, that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing the best possible price. These are high-quality premium acetate frames. There's no cheap plastic here. They also have lots of styles to choose from. Classic, trendy, round, aviator, mirrored, polarized for him and for her. You're sure to find the perfect pair for you. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's M-V-M-T dot com slash spycast. You know Movement for how they've revolutionized the watch industry. Now's the time to check out their sunglasses. Go to movement.com slash spycast. Join the movement. Um, I, I, I'm wondering about, I hate to bring up this line of questioning, because it constantly fuels the more kind of xenophobic elements of society. Well, then just don't, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys can stop listening. But I, I, I think one of the characters um, in your book is somewhat, not, not atypical at all, somewhat typical in that, uh, he's Chinese and he learns his skills from a top American university. And there's a lot of people that argue that uh, people from other countries, particularly in China, are coming to top American universities, mainly in California, but also in Boston and other places, uh, to learn these skills, to not only to learn the cyber skills, because you can do that just about anywhere, but also it gives them access to probe potential weaknesses firsthand if they're kind of knee deep in this environment. Yeah, I think there's always a risk that when you live in an open society um, and uh, that permits foreigners to come here and study in our institutions of higher learning and even uh, work in our national labs, uh, which scared the daylights out of me once when I did a, a visit out to the national labs and saw it populated with more foreigners than, uh, than Americans, uh, I kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it's tough. What do you do? 
uh, it goes to the question of who we are as a country. Are we an open society and one that encourages international engagement, or do we wall ourselves off? Uh, I think you certainly create greater risk, uh, you know, when you allow people who may uh, want to do harm to you and to your nation to come in and, and, and do the kinds of things you're suggesting. So, yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of still in the open, let's, let's be open uh, type of thing, but keep your uh, antenna up. Certainly, if you look, you know, you see anybody that's acting untoward or doing anything they shouldn't be doing, send them home. Is the, the China-U.S. rivalry focused almost exclusively on economics? It, it seems that since these economies are so intricately tied that a lot of the espionage we've seen from the Chinese has been stealing proprietary secret from companies, but also stealing, even when they're going after U.S. military hardware, it's not necessarily targeted at finding vulnerabilities in the military hardware or finding ways to kill it in the battlefield. It's more about how do we save billions of dollars not redesigning the Predator drone, for example? How do we not spend billions of dollars not redesigning the F-35? Why don't we just hack Lockheed Martin or General Atomics or General Dynamics to steal that information? So is this, are we less paying, are we paying less attention to China because it's economic versus kind of old-fashioned espionage that dealt with, you know, the Ames and Hansons of the world, which was more of a strategic balance in the Cold War and nuclear annihilation. You know, I'm sure that stuff's still getting uh, getting attention. I, I think on the China side, it's it's just that the numbers are so explosive and the amount. I, I uh, read somewhere uh, in my research, uh, uh, an economist used the phrase that the net result of China's cyber hacking against the U.S. is the largest transfer of wealth in history. Uh, so when you think about that number, I think it's hard to walk away from it. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I had lunch today with a friend, a former uh, a State Department colleague who uh, does some think tank work, and I was kind of putting out uh, my theory about uh, China as a surveillance society and the role that's had in cyber hacking. And uh, he kind of was saying, well, you know, I mean, I'm seeing more evidence these days of China doing more of its own R&D and that, um, that maybe, uh, maybe its reliance on uh, hacking foreign technology as a way of acquiring it is, is on the wane. And I said, well, I, if you read uh, the reports from the cybersecurity firms that look at China very carefully, that doesn't seem to be the case. But, uh, I mean, maybe they're doing dual track for a while, and, and maybe they will move away from it. There hasn't been a downside for them, uh, right. as far as I can tell. You know, you had, in 2015, five PLA officers uh, were given indictments by the Justice Department, which had about as uh, much uh, weight as a wet towel. Right. Uh, those guys are never coming to the right. U.S. They're never going to get uh, extradited. So uh, what's it all mean? Um, yeah. Do you ever see a time when there's a kinetic response to a cyber attack where their cyber attack is so bad that we respond with a non-cyber response i mean do we ever cross the rubicon with that because that would open up a whole new you know uh, can of worms because it would be pretty hypocritical for us to be shaking our finger and dropping a smart bomb on somebody for doing a cyber attack because we kind of invented the thing and and it's just not as public as everybody else well, it's becoming more public, um, although I haven't heard anything officially uh, come out of uh, any of the agencies on this. But um, you look at 
you look at this uh, wanna cry uh, uh, ransomware attack that's going on right now, and it, it's clear that the uh, uh, you know the, the the cyber weapons that are being used in that were ones that were developed uh, right here at home. Right. Uh, although there's been no admission of that, but that seems to be uh, the case. Uh, going back to the threat from within, so yeah, it does create a uh, it creates a dilemma. You know, how can you say how can you be blaming uh, everyone else for doing those kinds of things and and yet be uh, perhaps uh, committing the same kind of uh, cyber attacks yourself? Um, you know, th- it begs the question about whether or not there's besides getting our own house in order and having a, a better cyber kind of uh, policy in the U.S. Uh, are we ever going to get the equivalent of a international uh, cyber policy that has any teeth to it? Right. Um, you know, you think about START, for example. I, w- I was making this comparison uh, with somebody the other day, uh, a strategic arms treaty where you could count the weapons and you could, and, and, and there was verification and stuff like that. It seems like it's unlikely you could ever do anything like that with cyber because there's so many players and, 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 and you can't count it and you can't you quantify it and qualify it or anything. But if you could get um, get there, uh, maybe you know maybe we could stave off a cyber cold war. Well, turning into a cyber hot war. I mean, I think that's yeah. the fear a lot of people have is that you know, let's say somebody does do a like a Stuxnet type attack on the United States, we have two options. We could, we could respond with a even harsher cyber attack, but at some point somebody's going to drop a bomb instead of using a computer virus. Because, and, and that, You're not talking about North Korea, are you? Well, perhaps. Yeah. But I mean, I, it, you know, that, it, you know, uh, John McCain talked about the hacking of the election as an act of war, right? You start using those words, things get a little more interesting than just stealing stuff you know, economic, you know, proprietary information on a computer. Do you see that as a potential threat in the future of one of these things getting out of control and turning into a real shooting war? It, 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 it could certainly go that direction, I suppose. I mean, it would depend upon uh, the nature of the attack and, 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 and sort of, I suppose, uh, how the political stars aligned uh, against that. Um, you know, you, 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 Look at what happened with us in uh, 9-11, after 9-11. We're still 16 years out, and we're still fighting uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and and I, billions and billions of dollars and lots of bombs and things have uh, been dropped, and, and we haven't really resolved anything uh, satisfactorily, I don't think. So uh, what would it take if we were to get uh, that kind of a cyber attack? Would we, if we could identify who it was conclusively and, uh, and, and, and go in and do something uh, as kinetic as you're suggesting, uh, I, I think the will would be there. Yeah. And that's one thing we are getting better at, I think, is is attribution. I mean, do you see that trend continuing to uh, to grow to where you can actually pinpoint who did it? Is there, I, I remember maybe 10 years ago or so, there were hacks all the time from, quote-unquote, Russia. And you could always say, well, we can't trace it to the Russian government. It's very difficult to say if it wasn't just some hacker in Moscow doing this. Or same with China. Right, you can't say this is Chinese government sponsored. It might just be some independent group in China, but it looks like I guess since the OPM, or maybe since I don't remember if Sony was before OPM or after, but since Sony or before since OPM, there have been a string of attacks that we've been able to say this was government sponsored from the beginning, and you know, and that 
maybe that, that probably has nothing to do with cyber. That probably has a lot to do, more to do with other kinds of intelligence collection that's going along with it. Even uh, uh, you know, there's a firm. Uh, I think I think they have offices here locally. Uh, Mandiant. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. heard of them. They're a cybersecurity firm. They do some really good analysis on China, and uh, uh, I think we I mentioned earlier. Uh, 2PLA has been touted as uh, advanced persistent threat one. They've obviously been able to pinpoint, you know, signatures and, and methods and things like that and other things that give them conclusive uh, evidence that that they're behind a given attack. Uh, the thing is, uh, yeah, what do you where do you take that in right. terms of a response? Uh, I mean, five uh, indictments really isn't, isn't much against billions of dollars in losses. Because in the end, it's the ultimate covert action. Because even if you go, look, it's on this paper, I can trace it back to you. You can do what Putin's doing right now, saying, says who? Right? Prove it. Right. And you could show that to 300 out of the 320 million Americans, and then 300 million would go, it's just a piece of paper with some code on it. How do you prove that Putin's behind this? Right. And kind of the ultimate plausible deniability is right. covert action in the cyber world. Yeah, now if you can't uh, come in with something a little bit more conclusive than that, than that you're gonna have a hard time of uh, taking action or convincing anybody to go along with that. You know, you wanna you, you, you have that conclusive piece in front of you that says, these are the guys that did it. Right. And uh, in cyber, uh, often we don't, we don't have that. Thank you again to Bonwe and Movement for continuing to support SpyCast. Remember, you can start saving money on hotels and getting up to 30% back in rewards today by going to bonwe.com. Again, that's B-O-N-W-I.com. And you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash SpyCast. That's M-V-M-T dot com slash SpyCast. Well, the book is called Zero Day China Cyber Wars. The author is T.L. Williams. Uh, this out now and getting a lot of really good press and, and deservedly so. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of spy novels out there, but you can gain from this conversation and understand a little bit about who the author is, somebody that knows what the hell they're talking about. So I do recommend this book. Uh, go out and check it out. It's a little bit more than a beach read, but it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly accessible for just about anybody. Um uh, and it's and it's and it's something that we need to need at least need to have a conversation about. So, uh, Terry, thanks for taking the time to talk to us here on Spycast. We truly appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on Spycast. Every Tuesday, we will give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org, or tweet us at intlspycast, that's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.